Welcome to the Sisters in Crime Writers Podcast. Everyone has a unique writing journey, so join us for conversations about those journeys from the writers themselves. This is Julie Henricus, the Executive Director of Sisters in Crime, and I am delighted to welcome Cheryl Head to the podcast today. Cheryl writes the award-winning Charlie Mack Motown Mysteries, whose female PI protagonist is queer and black. Head is a two-time Lambda Literary Award finalist and winner of the Golden Crown Literary Society's Anne Bannon Popular Choice Award. Her books have been shortlisted for the Next Generation Indie Book Award and are listed in the Detroit Public Library's African American Book List. In 2019, Head was named to the Hall of Fame of the New Orleans Saints and Sinners Literary Festival, and this year she was awarded the Alice B. Reader Award. Cheryl is a current member of the National Bouchercon Board of Directors. She lives in Washington, D.C. with her partner and Abby and Frisbee, who provide canine supervision. Welcome to the podcast, Cheryl. Julie, I enjoy already being here. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm so glad we get to have a conversation and um, and talk about writing. And, yes. and you know, so I'm going to start the podcast, as I always do, um, and ask you when you first said to yourself, I want to write a book. Ooh, yes, that was later in life. I've had a career in public broadcasting. I've written many things. I've published some articles in magazines and newspapers and that kind of thing in, in my teens and early adult years. But I was working in public broadcasting, and uh, there was a wonderful series that Ken Burns did, a limited series called The War. It looked at World War II, and it was about the glory of the war and the small stories of the soldiers and the the, the challenges they had, but it told some stories about African-American soldiers that didn't ring true to me based on what I'd heard from my own dad who served in uh, World War II. So I thought, well, I'd like to do more research about really what that life was like to yeah. what I saw in that doc with what I knew from my dad. Started doing the research, decided I wanted to write a novel about it, about black soldiers' experiences in World War II, where 85% of them did not go to the front lines but worked in segregated army bases here in Washington, D.C., doing menial tasks, things they had done on the farms or they'd done in their, their cities. And um, it, was a, it was a labor of love, a gratifying story to write. Took a long time to write. Mm-hmm. I wanted to do justice to the story and honor to those men and women. I did oral histories with both men and women soldiers and spent a lot of time in the Library of Congress looking so I could know what 1941 through 1945 was like in America. Yeah. And uh, so after I did that, I thought I, pub- I, I wrote it. I, um, I think I maybe queried two or three people. I thought, the hell with that. And I published it on Amazon's, what was called Create, something like Create Place or something like that, Amazon's self-publishing network, a platform. And I I thought, well, good, I've done it. And then uh, just as a catharsis, I thought, I'm going to write a mystery. That'll be fun. I don't have to go to the Library of Congress. (laughs) It's fun. In four months, I wrote my first mystery and uh, self-published that too. And I was all, all pleased with myself, you know, and happy about the book. And uh, a, a publisher came up to me and said, I saw it. And would you consider us publishing and making uh, Charlie a lesbian? And I said, OK. <laughs> 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 and so that's really how I got my, my feet wet in publishing, because I was content just to have my stories reside out there. I didn't care if anybody read it. <laughs> I was just happy I did it and put the story out there. So, okay, there's a lot to unpack there. Okay. So, um, <laughs> for sure, I'm actually fascinated with the World War II stories because yeah. um, those stories aren't known. And I remember yeah. seeing a play, I think it was a Lynn Nottage play, 
maybe not, uh, a few years ago that, that talked about some of the stories about the um, uh, soldiers coming back and wearing uniforms and being beaten and lynched yeah, and, and, and all of this, all of, all of these awful things that are part of the whitewashing of our history that we don't know. Folks who yeah. served and, and proudly wore the uniform and did everything right, yes. quote unquote, yes. and still... Um, didn't get the respect and segregation was still what they they focused on. So that must have been an emotional journey to like do that research and write that book. Yes, it it was a really emotional journey for me. And what I found out, Julie, was that there was not a lot written about the home front experience of those soldiers. You know, we we talk about the soldiers that were uh, the Tuskegee Airmen. Lots of people know that story. They're brave men, love them. And the uh, battalion that went to Italy. So there were maybe 15 percent of uh, Negro Negro at the time they were called soldiers went overseas. But most of them were not overseas. And it was um, it was a, a war. It was to me as courageous as being on the battlefield because they were facing every single day all this prejudice and backlash and yeah. as second class soldiers and still following orders, you know? Yeah. And and questioning themselves about, you know, I thought this was gonna be different. I'm ready to fight Nazis, <laughs> you know. And here I yeah. am digging holes or digging graves or burying garbage or putting up white people's hospitals. Everything in the army at that point was segregated. The hospitals, the eating arrangements, the sleeping arrangements, the theaters, everything was segregated then. So it was, it was, uh, the things I discovered made me sad, but I was happy to be telling that story and to also learn of the folks who just pushed through, served with honor and looked at the allies, people like Eleanor Roosevelt was a tremendous ally to the Negro soldier experience and learned about the people who were the entertainers of those days who would go to the the black army bases and perform for the black soldiers as a way to relieve them from the drudgery of their day-to-day work. And uh, it was, uh, yeah, it uh, it was a great experience for me, grueling, but I really learned a lot about America and really helped me to give some context to where we are now. Yeah, no, absolutely. And is this book still available on uh, Amazon? Yeah, it is still available on Amazon. It's called Long Way Home, a World War II story. I'm hoping it I can put it with a traditional publisher and get a b- bigger footprint for it. But I've sold thousands and thousands of copies of that book. Uh, yeah. I wrote it in 2014, I believe it was. Wow. Yeah. Well, you've just sold another one to me and oh, I'll make sure right. it goes in the show note, notes because I do, I, I think we all need to educate ourselves on our, our true history. So, Thank you. Um, uh, and I, I hope Ken Burns hears this and realizes he needs to add a, another <laughs> segment. Yeah, Ken's doing better now. He's doing more interesting stories to me now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so let's talk about uh, Charlie and, yeah. and that, that, Let's talk about the writing first, and then okay. I want to hear more about this publishing and, okay. and the you know publisher saying, "Oh, could you make her a lesbian?" <laughs> yeah. Which is which is a tremendous um, question that not everyone gets asked, right? I mean, to, <laughs> oh, <laughs> could you make your protagonist a lesbian is is a good thing to ask. Um, so, why crime novel? Why did you say to yourself, "I want to write a mystery"? Because I love the genre. Uh, it's relaxing for me to read them. It's relaxing for me to watch the BBC <laughs> mystery series that come yeah. on PBS. I just it just takes my blood pressure down. I love them. I love figuring out the puzzle of them. I love being that person to try to figure out who did it well before the end of the show. You know, I grew up reading the Nancy Drew and the Hardy Boy stuff. I kind of wanted to be more the Hardy Boy than Nancy, however. <laughs> um, but I, you know, I loved Sherlock Holmes and Poe and all those stories that really kind of spoke to me as a young black girl who was clearly weird. <laughs> you know, um, those were the kinds of things that I gravitated to uh, as an adult. So I was reading, you know, Sue Grafton and I was reading uh, the ladies number one detective agency series and mm-hmm. fourth Agatha Christie and Poirot and Chandler and that stuff. But, uh, you know, if, if I wanted to relax with a novel, it was a mystery. It was never a romance. It was never a biography. It was a ro- it was a mystery. And so did you how did you learn how to write a mystery? Having written nonfiction and worked in, in, in public television. So, you know, you get yeah. the whole yeah. 
storytelling, but how yeah. did you learn how to write a mystery? It's a different muscle to flex for sure. I mean, I think it did help that I knew the storytelling elements of working in public broadcasting and being a producer. So I've been telling yeah. stories in a different format and a different platform with the, you know, with the visual being the thing driving more than the writing in a lot of ways. So, and I, and I was a student, not a, not a master student, but a student of the genre. So I knew what I liked in the genre. I knew I liked the deflection. I knew I liked really complicated plots. Uh, I knew I liked the quirkiness of the protagonist, the, the either the amateur or the professional detective or the police officer. I knew I, I understood all those elements kind of inherently, I guess. I mean, I literally didn't study the stuff. And that, <laughs> that first book was just, you know, I wrote this mystery. It's great. Here it is you know, to the world. It was everything I wanted as a reader of mysteries, as a viewer of that genre on, on public television. And, I, and it was very satisfying to me. Now am I, I'm learning as I go. I'm getting better. Mm -hmm. you know. I'm doing better at the, the skill at the, and the craft of the writing of it. I, I think I've always been able to do the plot stuff pretty well, to, to imagine the intricacies of a plot and to make the, 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 the threads weave together in a satisfying end. And I mean, I think I can just inherently do that. But the writing part, that's a muscle I had to flex. Um, mm -hmm as you say, coming from nonfiction and writing for radio and TV to writing a novel is a different kind of craft. And um, I think each book gets better and I'm still learning, um, yeah. and, uh, still learning and one and studying around the, the short story arc. Cause I think if you can perfect the short story, you can get better at everything. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so I'm, <laughs> I'm actually going to take some, this year, since I'm not writing a lot this year that can be published, I'm going to take some short story uh, classes and workshops so I can get better at that. Because I think that, you know, that three act arc is what I would really drives all storytelling, I think. Yeah. In a, in a way that's satisfying to people. Even when you go to see a play, when you read a book, when you see it on t TV, it's built Absolutely. around, you know, it, you know, it's Shakespeare. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, the three act structure is definitely something yeah. we all recognize. Right. The short story is, is I think an amazing ability because yeah. you're really taking a moment and, right. and putting everything into that into moment. That moment. <laughs> and it means the precise selection of words and the yeah. precise selection of dialogue. And you're you're weaning out all the the stuff you don't need. I think that's fabulous. <laughs> yeah. I just I'm so amazed at people who do it well. There's so many yeah. people in our in our little sphere of the world in crime fiction who do such an excellent job of that. Such an excellent job. And there have been some wonderful anthologies coming out in the last yes. few years of, of different short stories. Yeah, absolutely. And they're more diverse. And to me, they're more interesting. I have a, a broader swath of stories. I really am enjoying the yeah. anthologies. Yeah. Um, now, are you a plotter or a pantser or uh, a bit of both? Or, mm -hmm. or what's your process like? Well, I've become a hybrid, but I started mm -hmm. off purely as a plotter. Uh, outlining the story. Uh, the first one was more outlined in my head, to tell you the truth, but it clearly I was following an outline. The second book, all total outline. I was just, you know, going to the outline and, go, and going to the outline. Uh, but I realized in the third book that I could just start writing the idea down first. And so I did that for a while. Then I get stuck. Then I go like, okay, now it's time to do the outline. What's, what's yeah. happening next? So I found that that's a pretty good, that hybrid approach is a pretty good device for me. Um, so I'll jot down the idea, a couple paragraphs, then start writing it. And then to get to a place where I just don't know where to go, and then I'll outline. I did that in graduate school. I, was, <laughs> I would write the paper, then I'd do the, the table of contents, you know? <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> um, and I, I find in my conversations with folks uh, on this podcast that a lot of people evolve their their way of doing it over time because yeah. the same bag of tricks doesn't keep working. Doesn't <laughs> you go, work. okay. Yeah. yeah. I, mean, I find an outline is a really good security blanket because, you know, when you do get stuck, you can go and say, oh, yeah, that's right. I haven't put that there. Or maybe let's move that up. So it does become a really nice kind of a cheat sheet or security blanket, I would, I would call it more. Uh, so it's good to have, but then I don't know if you're as creative if you're just sticking to the outline. In fact, I know you're not. At least I don't feel I am. 
Do you have a an idea for a arc on on the Not always. Not always. I I have literally written a couple of books where I don't know who did it. Like halfway through, I'm not sure who did it. So that's not always so good. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So that's that part of the outlining that way helps me to have thought through the whole story. Mm -hmm. Uh, And if I'm not outlining, I definitely don't think beyond like what I'm seeing in my head is the first few chapters or the first few scenes or that kind of, or the, or the, usually I'm building around a, a concept, usually not around a protagonist or antagonist. It's the concept that turns me on. I'm going like, wow, that's a great idea. And I just start writing it, you know, I, t- I, I like lots of different parts of the landscape of crime fiction. I haven't written a cozy. I don't know if I can do it. I so admired the titles, <laughs> you know, <like> <laughs> But I, 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 lean, I lean towards noir and I lean towards thrillers and I kind of want to keep fresh and keep, you know, amusing myself in the writing. So I'll try different things. And you do try different things. You get series and you're, you know, you get standalone and you get different, you know. So <clears throat> tell me about your your series first and, yeah. and how how the characters showed up for you. I mean, yeah. was it, you know, just I want to write a mystery. So you thought about the character or was the character sitting there with you saying, ha, tell my uh-huh. story. Yeah. Oh, yeah. OK. So my two uh, conceits are that black women are natural born detectives. That's the first conceit. So I thought, well, I'm going to make this black woman a private investigator that's what we do all the time anyway we just don't call it that so that was the first conceit the second conceit was i wanted it to be about detroit and be an homage to detroit where i grew up where i was born Mm -hmm. and i looking back in my on my life i was thinking you know there's this like 12 mile square area where i spent 80 percent of my life you know went to college there I worked two different jobs there. And so I thought, I'm going to just tell a story about what Detroit feels like to me as a person yeah. who loves it. And so that was really what started me, just those those two ideas. Black women can solve problems because that's what we do. And what problem would we have in Detroit? And I set, uh, purposely set the, the series in the mid-2000s of Detroit, which was a really hard time for the city. Mm-hmm. It, uh, financially culturally, racially, it was a hard time. Uh, I, I believe that Detroit's one of those bellwether cities where things that will show up later in our society and other cities' uh, concerns yeah. show up first in Detroit. I think mm-hmm. LA is a city like that. There are the places, but uh, you know, the, the thing around the creativity of Detroit, plus its experiments around um, social and cultural mixings, <laughs> I think uh, are are important things to look at when we look at how uh, America has evolved. And do you find now, you know, the further you get from the mid 2000s, um, are you are you happy that you've made this choice to focus on that time? And, you know, do you find that you want to sort of add some current things in so that you can mix them in and make them fit? Yeah, I'm, that I'm, makes now, sense. I'm now thinking, yes, it makes total sense. I now want to jump like 10 years ahead. I really do. And the last book took on some of the current issues around hate groups. Mm-hmm. But because it said in 2009 in the first um, administration of, of Obama, it really talks about what's the nascent beginnings of hate groups. Yeah. So it kind of shows an explanation of how these groups both grew and thrived and who's attracted to them and that kind of thing. I wanted to, I wanted to understand what was afoot. Sounds like Sherlock Holmes. What was afoot when, you know, when you think about who are the men, mostly white men and, and women too, who were attacking the Capitol on January 6th. I'm thinking, who are these people? Yeah. But who, yeah. are the, who are the men, all white men, who conspired to kidnap the governor of Michigan? What, yeah. were, they, what were they thinking? <laughs> you know? Yeah. So I wanted yeah. to write, where did that come from? Where are the origins of those actions and those thoughts and those feelings. Of course, if we could go back in time and tell our 2009 selves that all of this would have happened, we, we wouldn't would, believe it. There would, right? be more, there would be more killing in the book. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, we would be trying to nip that in the bud. <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah. Uh, it's, it's quite the journey. These, yeah, and, yeah, you know, yeah. yeah, uh, yeah. Um, so tell me about... Um, 
Well, let's, yeah, let's keep talking about the, the, the series. series. And then yeah. I want to talk a little bit more about your writing, you know, process okay. and things like that. But yeah. um, I actually, the other interesting thing to me focusing in 2009 is that you're still in the are there cell phones is there coverage like you can still play with technology and have that be an issue because these days it there takes you know technology takes away so much <laughs> peril <laughs> that's, that's right no, you're absolutely right and that's that's the, when i miss the most that i'm not in contemporary days so the first book I'm talking about blackberries. <laughs> I'm like, wait a minute, nobody uses a blackberry anymore. But so, but we catch, had them. Yes, and catching <laughs> up to that technology, you're right, really changes the way we would solve a problem or the way we yeah. respond to peril. You know, all that. Um, I'm pretty sure I have three more. I would say I have at least three more books in that series. I've done six. And uh, now that I've been in 2009, I'm going to fast forward to probably right around 2016, 15, 16 at least. So we're only, I'm only five years back because yeah. I have one character in the book, uh, Charlie's mom, who has early onset Alzheimer's. I've been really reluctant to move forward and kill her or have her further de demise in the book. But my editor keeps saying, are you sure Ernestine could do that? You know, Ernestine has dementia, yeah. and, you know, that kind of thing. So I've got to reconcile my feelings about that and my uh, understanding that I want to move the story forward, because I also want Charlie and her partner, Mandy, to be able to talk about gay marriage. That was not happening in 2009 in Michigan. Right. Uh, it wasn't legal at right. that time. So there are some there are some issues I want to deal with that are contemporary issues that require me to move the story forward. And I'll do that. Um I will say, and I didn't really respond to your question about the, the series, that in addition to Charlie and her mom, there are these other, this gaggle of really secondary characters that I love. Um, one is a guy named Don Rutkowski, who is an amalgam of all the white men I knew in Detroit, both good and bad. The ones who helped me, who mentored me, and the ones who irritated the shit out of me. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and I find such joy in writing Don because I can just say whatever the hell I want to say. Because he would. Yeah. You know, so yeah. that part is really a release for me. Yeah. And, and, and yet with Don, there is a, traje a trajectory of his growth in that story because of his proximity to Charlie and his partners. And they're constantly, you know, clucking their tongues at him when he's saying something really racist or dumb or just that kind of thing. And, um, and Charlie, who is a person who is a little, a little wound up tightly around her emotions, doesn't express them very well. She's got these mm -hmm. people that help her with that. Mandy, her partner, but also her her office manager, Judy um, Novak. Uh, so I've got two Polish-American characters in there that I knew growing up in Detroit because Ham Tramming's there and it's a big Polish enclave. And yeah. I spent a lot of time there eating food, <laughs> hanging <laughs> with people. And I, I, I love uh, kind of the culture, the Polish culture as it showed up in Detroit and what that's about and the connection they had to Black people there. And so I, I have fun with that. I have one Hispanic American male there because there is a big group of Hispanic people like there is all across America now. Yeah. Uh, um, and I wanted to explore how these different races and classes would get to would come together and work together in a really effective way. I think they're I think they're powerful as a team. And I think Charlie is so much better a protagonist because she has them to bounce off of and they yeah. and she has them to pressure her you know, to change. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Well, and I also love hearing about this because you're telling a real story. You're telling a story of a city that has that diversity. You're not making right. it up. It's no. true. Yeah, <laughs> this, it is, is, this is her lived experience. Yeah, um, and so you're exploring the richness of that and the foibles and the and the challenges and the yes. growth and the pushback and right. and her experience as a black woman, which you are uniquely able yeah. to write oh i couldn't write her experience right yeah, but i right. could add diverse characters to a book i'm working on if Absolutely. they're if they're if it's true it's yeah. got to be true yes yes i mean i think there's certainly value in the authenticity of own voices writing you know Absolutely. Uh, i always say i think writers should write anything they want um but but if you're writing outside of your culture 
and it's not a, a third party, you know, a third character that's coming down the street and you're just describing them briefly as someone who's really meaningful to your story, then there's a lot of homework to be done and a lot of um, understanding of that culture that needs to be um, inculcated before you put it down on paper to me. Yeah. Um, I think think readers spot it when it's superficial and it's tropey and it's stereotypical. Yeah. And we want to avoid stereotypes. I yeah, think that that's the, you know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I think adding complexity and richness is yeah. part of it. And this is an ongoing conversation and a journey yeah. um, for writers. But I think we really need to uh, work on this so that yeah. our, our books and our writing is are more complex and more interesting. I think it makes it so much. I think it makes our genre so much more interesting now that we someone like me and so many other really fine crime writers of color can can understand the fundamentals of mystery writing and love the classic mystery books and mystery writers and yeah. then riff on them. Yeah. You know, to add these new layers that, you know, that didn't, that Chandler didn't have, you know, so I, I'm enjoying that. I'm enjoying reading Naomi Hirohara's Japanese American gardener protagonist, you know, yes, I, yes. You know I, yeah, that's freeing to me. And it's, and it's much more real. You know? Yeah. Well, and it's, it's wonderful for me to read all of these uh, wonderful books. I mean, we're in a golden age we of are, books absolutely. coming out right now yeah. um, that allow me to explore the world with a different lens that's completely different or but also might have some similarities or some places where it's like oh yeah I have that happen too or you know I mean it's this is part of the human experience and I think it's really wonderful that I think uh, and I think our readers demand it of us you know they're they're the world (laughs) yeah they see the world around them and uh we you know it's no longer Cabot Cove you know it's no yeah, it isn't. I mean, and and bless it. I mean, we love we love Jessica Fletcher. We love, we love Cabot Cove, um, but Maine is the whitest <laughs> state in the entire I've country. Been there, and I can attest to that. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful place, great it lobster. Is but <laughs> but I'm like, huh, huh. I think huh. the, the city I visited, Brooklyn, Maine. Had, uh, I looked it up before I came. I'm going like, let me see where I'm going. <laughs> I think it was 0.4% African-American. So I, 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 I joked with my friends that I would make it 045 <laughs> <laughs> uh, Um. So uh, when you... You wrote your first book, you put it out there, yeah. and you had uh, somebody, a publisher, come up to you and say, can you make her a lesbian? Yes, yes. Tell me that story. Yeah. <laughs> Funny story to me. So I, I had the book out. Uh, I, I was at a reading. Uh, someone invited me to go to a, uh, a festival in Rehoboth Beach. There was an LGBTQ festival. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm reading at the bookstore, and the publisher comes to me afterwards and says, you know, I read your book. I really like it. Thank you. You think you, I'm, I'm at the LGBTQ festival because that tells you something already. But she, but there is no lesbian content in my first version of that book because I'm one of these noir purists where there's no romance in noir. Yeah. You might see a <laughs> woman and say, "Oh, great gams," and then you move on. <laughs> there was no romance in it at all. And so she said that to me. I like the book. Do you think? Charlie could be a lesbian? And I said, yeah, I think she could. And I went back to my beta readers and they all said to a person, we thought she was. (laughs) (laughs) So I thought, well, this is a little bit easier than I thought. But what I had to do is go and add romance scenes, which was grueling and hard and awful. (laughs) I'm just no good at it. So I'm looking for some help. You know, I'm putting on my analytical cap. I'm going like, what percentage of romance to mystery should there be in this book? (laughs) I don't know. You know, so I literally had to write. I think I wrote three sex scenes because it just seemed like that was, you know, plopping them into the already written story. And so you'll see in the trajectory of the series that there's more sex in the first book and almost no sex 
sex book because I just that doesn't come natural to me. And I don't, you know, and plus it's a lesbian relationship. And I think like all relationships, marriages, whether they're straight or gay, you know, you have sex at the beginning and towards the end, you know, not, not so much. <laughs> this probably is getting really far away from our purpose of this. <laughs> well, but I also think, you know, in talking about genre, P.I., Noir, yeah. you're right. Yeah. I mean, it's not, it's, it's, there, there are certain things that you do. The beauty of writing something that uh, is self-published is that you can go back and write a second version and that's right and figure that out um but yeah now making it clear yeah about her is probably good yeah i think it's interesting in some way but i don't think they needed the sex things i mean i think the story's good without them but yeah but the like it (laughs) yeah well and also you let everyone know oh in case if in case there was a question here we go (laughs) very graphic glad to Glad to help you out with that. (laughs) Um, What's the best piece and the worst piece of writing advice you've gotten? Okay. So the worst piece is write what you know. That just never, I never, I didn't know anything (laughs) about World War II, (laughs) but I wanted to learn about it. And I did learn about it. So I think that's, and maybe it's easier to write what you know, and that's where you start. And of course, the, maybe the, the 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 concept or the innards of the story is all what you know. But after that, you've just got to do the work of homework yeah. and research and that kind of thing. And you know, write what turns you on is, is uh, makes more sense to me. And then the best piece of advice, um, probably a couple of things. Um, in the ed- editing for me is the worst part of the work. It's just grueling and hard and do- I'm doing revisions right now. And it's just like, ah, you know, you don't want to sit down. <laughs> you don't want to do it. <laughs> but I heard someone say it really helps to read your story aloud. You really, you can catch both copy edits and you can catch problems with dialogue and it, you can, the, the rhythm of the story presents itself when you're reading it aloud. So that has helped me. And I, We'll often do that, especially in chapters or, or areas where I think it's clunky. Mm-hmm. And I'll read it aloud and smooth it out based on the rhythm of it. Uh, so that's been a really good piece of advice for me. And then I guess the other would be um, to uh, do more around atmospherics. Um, so I'm a great admirer of people who can, like like a James Lee Burke, who I once counted in one of his stories, 86, an 86 word sentence that was describing a swamp or something like that. Wow. Uh, wow. Yeah. I need, you know, I'm, I'm a pretty pedantic writer. And so sometimes I'll go back and add some flourish to it to make it more visually appealing or just to, you know, you, you feel like you're there rather than I'm just telling you it's there. So I'm yes. trying to do more showing. Yes. Yeah. No, I mean that's that's that ongoing, but 86 words. That's like a 86 word sentence. And it was beautiful. <laughs> Did you diagram sentences when you were in high school or, or yeah. is this we, something? We had to do it then. That meant you know, yeah. in my public school education, yes, you diagram sentences. Uh you know, everything was, you're writing it out. It's not on the, you really knew how to do math. Yeah. <laughs> and you had the, piece of paper with all yeah, the things but my my teacher would give us like you know Faulkner like these sentences wow. from hell that were just like are you kidding me so this 86 word sentence I'm getting those flashbacks yeah, of some person right. trying to diagram yeah, it like right. what's I mean, the subject <laughs> I, I'm just getting to a point where I can put a preposition at the end of a sentence because stuff is like no you're not I hear you I hear you even emails, I fix it. I'm like, I can't do that. <laughs> I edit texts. I mean, it's just, it never goes away. <laughs> right. I do like the freedom of kind of the new writing, though. And I, yeah. and I read poetry. Uh, when I get stuck, I'll read poetry to loosen up. So that's yeah. a pleasure for me. Yeah. Poetry is an amazing mm-hmm. um 
Faith Snowden uh, recommended that to me at one point to, to help me get through a writing block. She's like, yes. read poetry. And yes. Like, okay. It's and it's true. It really it's is like, true. Yeah. Makes your brain think differently. It, it, yeah. Absolutely. And it makes you use the space on the page differently, which I admire, you know. Yes. And, yeah. yeah. And that, Beautifully. So tied by uh, the structure of the sentence. Now, Cheryl, you have a book coming out next year, and I yeah. want to talk about that. Tell me a little bit about this project. Well, it's a it's a novel based on a, a family tragedy, a personal family tragedy. And I was like everyone home with COVID in March of 2020 uh, when George Floyd died, and it just I was so angry about it. I remember just walking through the house, just raving. And realized now is the time to tell this family story that I've just been putting off. I, I really hadn't even considered writing the story. It just had been this, this mythology in our family about my father being murdered by Birmingham, Alabama police in 1929. Uh, I've heard the story over and over again from my mother, from her sister, you know, the whispers about it. My mother heard the whispers about it. Nobody really wanted to talk about it, but it was a story that was just part of our life. My mother would say, yes, and your father and your great, and my, my father, your grandfather. And so uh, I decided, you know, wait a minute, let me look at that. Let me look at this yeah. story. How does it connect to what's happening with policing in black communities now? Yeah. And so I started doing research on this story and it was an amazing cathartic thing for me, but also I think a really interesting story about how systemic racism in police departments is not a new phenomenon. Yeah. And the murder of black people, uh, you know, by uh, by the hands of police officers are, is not a, 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 a contemporary issue. It's an mm -hmm. issue that's been around a long time. I've got police officers in my family, so I don't have any. And I, and I grew up at a time where, you know, we had officer friendly <laughs> come to our school and we feel like the policeman is your friend. Yeah. And that was, that was ground into me, but I, you know, I'm now I'm afraid of, I'm afraid of police. I really am. I mean, and I'm an older black woman who should be safe from police. Cause I'm not yeah. doing anything. <laughs> I'm no danger, but yeah. I'm, when I see a couple of police officers, I tense up. So anyway, that, that I didn't mean to do therapy here. So uh, the story is about um, a young reporter from Detroit who is covering the Black Lives Matter beat for the Detroit Free Press. And she pitches to her editorial team to tell the story of her great-grandfather who was killed by Birmingham, Alabama police as a way to give some context to the new story. So it's kind of mm -hmm. a parallel with my life. And uh, it's a dual timeline, 1929 in the voice of the, the great-grandfather, 2019 in the voice of this young reporter. And her goal in going to Birmingham is to solve the, the mystery of his murder. What are the details of his murder? Um, and she does at the end. And um, I think it's a story of, you know, sobering in a way, but there's a romance in it. Uh, she meets some people who helps her who help her in such an amazing way to tell the story because people want it to be told. They go like, oh, that's awful. How can I help you? And at the end, I think it offers some hope around how cities can change, how communities can change and how relationships between uh, black and white folks and other people can really change and have changed. I think we've yeah. come, we have come a long way, still a long way to go. Um, and yeah. so, um, you know, that it's called Time's Undoing. And uh, I think it's really good. To, I'm writing in the middle of revisions right now. So I feel like I'm writing the story all over again. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But uh, I think it's a good story. And I think I'm hoping it'll have traction for people. And did you, when you were um, looking into your grandfather's murder? Yeah. Did you learn things like, I yeah. mean, if family lore, I, I've always found that the stories that get passed down, then you start yeah. to research like, oh. like oh, that's not, that's not, that didn't happen. Yeah. I have learned so much now. And I'm the, the beauty of it is I'm able to tell my 94, 94 year old mother about it. I'm going like, Mom, uh, guess what? Granddad didn't die on in September. He died in June because I have his death certificate now for the first time ever in, uh, in your life. <laughs> so I'm doing the research because I'm looking through newspapers and I actually uh, came across, this is amazing to me and I'm, I feel like I'm getting help 
from you know someone to, to tell this story. I am on Ancestry.com, mm-hmm. part of my research. Ancestry.com has a relationship with newspapers.com. I sign up for it. And I'm just going through newspaper after newspaper. How are Black folks treated in 1929? What is Birmingham like in 1929? You know, that kind of research. I think I've done done that for two or three months, looking through newspapers on and off. And I came across, finally, looking at a St. Petersburg paper, which is where my family is from, an article that says, the headline says, Negro man, local Negro man killed by Birmingham police. And it's about my great, it's about my grandfather. Wow. Listen to name says he's killed by police for resisting wow. arrest. Wow. And I remember sitting there because it was, it was almost like a parallel with what my protagonist is doing. And I remember sitting there thinking, oh, my God, I have found proof that, wow. you know, that, that this story is not just folklore. Yeah. And so wow. We still don't know where he's buried. We still don't know where my grandfather's buried. I'm still doing that kind of research. Um, there's been some Northwestern University has done a big um, expose on the Birmingham police shootings that that end right at 19. I think it ends at 1929 or something like that. So I'm, I'm going to call those researchers and see how they got access to their information and what yep. they put in their report and that kind of thing. So there's still some research to do, but the story is in itself written. But my personal story is not totally written yet. Yeah. Wow, Cheryl. Wow. And your mom was was little when all this happened. My mom was only two. So, I mean, oh. it was literally her relatives telling her what happened and then her telling her children what happened and, and then the siblings telling each other what happened. But it was this constant through line of, of specific facts that are, turned out to be true. You know, you know, it's amazing to me. It really is. But my mother's eyesight is not great now so I'm actually reading her passages she's like are you, are you going to read me another chapter yes uh, oh and that's so, I, so great and, and she'll say it didn't happen that way and I'll, say, well, <laughs> I'll say this is fiction mom I'm like yeah. stuff up too <laughs> I made this part up mom. <laughs> and remind me the name again it's called time's undoing and it's going to be out in 2023, 2023. right that's yeah, right. congratulations. So Thanks. are you, so this is a standalone, this is a, standalone. you know. I'm, um, I'm writing a sequel to it because I want to, I want to expand on the kind of the, the romance that comes out as a result of, of the reporter's work in Birmingham. So I, I have started outlining. <laughs> that's a, awesome. A, a sequel. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Well, you know, and so, but you're going to keep writing your series as well. Yeah, I, I, again, I think I have at least three or four more books in me and I've outlined three more stories in the Charlie series. So I'm hoping to do those, but I can't publish them until after this other book comes out. Yeah. Yeah. And do you, are you able to work on two projects at the same time yeah. or? Yes. Yes. During COVID, I wrote a Charlie book, this time's undoing draft and a third novel. <laughs> so yes. Wow. Wow. Good for you. Cause yeah, so, I, a lot of people can't. <laughs> a lot of people couldn't. Yeah. I, I wrote, I have a standalone, I would I hope is a beginning of a series of a spin-off of the Charlie book set in DC. Oh fun. One of the characters spun off. Oh, good for yeah. you. That's yeah. fun. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um so let's talk just in a couple minutes we have left about the importance of community to writing and to, to being a writer. I mean, yeah. you're uh, um, a member of the crime writing community. You were a judge for the Sync Pride Award last year. You're a member yeah, of Crime Writers of Color. Um, you're a member of Sisters in Crime and other organizations. And so just um, tell, you know, tell me about community and writing for so you. So important. Um, and, and for introverts like I am, you don't always know intuitively that it is important. I, I have a, a, a writing group that I work with. They're wonderful to me. They're about the same age, same kind of experience. They can, you know, they are both supportive and comforting to me. And at the same time going like, Cheryl, you know, that is not a good, that's terrible. <laughs> you, know, you need, you need that. You need someone yeah. on your loved one who will say, Oh honey, that's great. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> 
But then beyond that community, I have found that it really helps to have the community of writers uh, that both Sisters in Crime provides, but also the Crime Writers Color Group I'm in provides. Mm-hmm. People who just keep you lifted up, you know, who celebrate with you when you have successes and commiserate with you when you have rejections or you have a, a, a the day where you have imposter syndrome, you know, like, sure, you know, you, you know, you're a great writer. Um, so community is so important. And I, I think even for an in, introvert like me, you can still, you know, you, you move in and out of that community in a way that's still going to give you all the help you need. And hopefully you help that community as well. So I'm really big on the writing community. Uh, the conferences we have in our in our landscape of writing are, are really good conferences, I think. And they're mm-hmm. each of them a little bit different. And I've gotten to meet so many people that I admire that I see on Facebook and I'm going like, I know that person, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and it really, this time during Facebook, it really helps me to make connections about them that I, pro- I probably wouldn't make if I had just yeah. seen them at the conferences. But now I know about their children. Yeah. <laughs> and their yeah. Parents, that kind of thing. So important community. And Sisters in Crime does a really good job of, Almost all the aspects of it, like the writing help, all the resources that are available, um, the opportunities to connect with other folks, like the breakfast that happens at VoucherCon, the Sisters in Crime breakfast. That's so much fun. Yeah. The, the awards you give out, you know, so I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm very high on community right now. Yeah. Well, and you're on the VoucherCon uh committee, which is, ButcherCon's the largest crime writing um, conference in the world. It's um, for fans, but yeah. obviously a lot of writers conference. are there, but it's a fan yeah. conference. Yeah. Um, and it's happening in Minneapolis in yeah. September. That's right. Um, I'm, I'm trying to remember the dates off the top of my head. I'm, uh, September 7th is coming up. I'll put it in the show notes. Oh, okay. um, but um, it's we haven't been able to do it in person for two years. We haven't. We in fact we had to cancel the one in New Orleans for for this year. Yeah, for last year. And uh, it'll be a great conference to get together with the folks who admire this genre. I mean, the fans, the authors, the publishers, the other industry experts, we're all there to celebrate mystery and crime fiction. And I've been to, this will be my fourth one. And my first one was in St. Pete. I didn't know a damn person there, but my mom lives in St. Pete. So I was there. (laughs) And right away, you know, you get caught up in the community. People are so wonderful and giving and welcoming. Um, I was at Malice a few years ago to, and then I saw Joanne Love. And of course I'm standing there trying to meet her while she's surrounded by people who were talking to her. So I'm waiting. And then Kelly Garrett just sees me standing there and I see her look at me and I look at her and she's checking me out and I'm checking her out. (laughs) And then she comes over, she goes like, girl, you want to come to a a meeting of of the black women writing crime? I'm going like, yes. (laughs) Yes. So, you know, just these folks who come and grab you, (laughs) they, you're part of us now. Yeah, no, it's, and it's so important to, to have those communities and have yeah. those connections yeah. and to see each other in 3D. But the yeah. people you just mentioned, Drew in Love, I'm going to put her blog in the oh, show notes because she is a champion oh, she of is. the mystery oh, community, a it champion. Just a labor of love for her. Labor of love. And she, yeah. uh, she's just amazing. Yeah. Yeah. I do too. I she do too. All genre, all the subgenre of the, of the mystery community. She is so giving. She's a wonderful person. And she does it in a bunch of different ways. She lets, yeah. you know, she Absolutely. she reviews, but she also has a blog where characters come to visit. Yeah. And she also just, you know, will launch a cover. I mean, she's helped so she's many helped, careers. Uh, every month talks about the new releases. I mean, yes, she- absolutely. Yeah. So people should know about her and yeah. follow her on social media and yeah. meet her at conferences because she comes to conferences. Yeah, um, and Kelly Garrett yeah. is, um, is uh, just an amazing force she is she's an advocate she is uh, she is one of the people who's uh really giving she's like a you know like your little sister for me little sister <laughs> you know she yeah she will, she will chide you she will remind you of the, the work that needs to be done she'll she doesn't take prisoners easily no yeah. so if you no. mess up she's gonna like mm-hmm, you messed up mm-hmm. <laughs> and let's yeah. talk about it, you know yeah um, you know i think it's interesting in our in our community how the gen the generations respond to each other 
you know, uh, there's this cadre of new writers, Kelly's generation and younger, who are just pressing for change and they want it now. You know, yeah. and I'm on, in an older generation where I'm going like, they're doing the best thing. <laughs> It'll be OK. They're doing the best yeah. thing. Yeah, Cheryl, but they had their chance. Let's get it done now. <laughs> you know? And, I, yeah. you know, it makes sense to me. And I understand that energy. And uh, I think we, you know, I think it's such a rich community now. I think that we, we don't even know the benefits of it. We won't see them till 10 or 15 years later. Yes. We'll have this new generation of crime and mystery fans yeah. who are celebrating the work, who are watching the new TV shows, who are, you know, writing the new books, who are reading the new books. I mean, I think we're bringing people into the fold because mystery makes sense to them now. You yes. Know, mystery writers yeah. are the ones who observe, see the horizon and go like, this shit is about to happen. I'm sorry. Can you cuss on these? <laughs> <laughs> you can, you can. But but you're exactly right. I mean, mystery and crime talks, I mean, it's about justice, whatever that looks justice. like. And they and to spell out that it looks differently for different people. Absolutely. Yeah, take on those issues. Yeah. yeah. And the generation is interesting because I suspect you and I are, are around the same age and, and we, um, we do make excuses for, yeah, for people yeah. behaving badly. That's just yeah. how you sort of navigate it. And because that's how we have had to navigate, you know? Yeah, yeah. you know? And, and, you, and, and we also see that change has been made, you know? Well, like, yeah. things, are, things are actually better. Yeah. <laughs> as it's, bad as it is. <laughs> bad as it is. The generation ahead of us told us a lot worse stories. So, you know. That's right. That's right. But I, I love this generation coming up because I'm too. just like, let them lead. Let me do what I can to yes. support them because yeah. they, they are taking no prisoners and, and right. you know demanding yeah. change yeah yeah and and i think i think the genre genre will be better for it although i do too the writing is interesting the topics they're taking on are interesting the approaches to stories interesting yeah. Yeah. they're working together in collaborative ways that are interesting so yeah. it's gonna be good and there's joy. I mean, it's not all, you know, it's, it's all sorts of books. And so, yes. you know, uh, and all sorts of stories and Absolutely. everything else so that there's joy in the stories and there's the exploration and yeah. there's, you know, it's, it's, it's a, what it's a time of vibrancy. Absolutely. Um, That's a great word, vibrancy. And, and I would also add commonality. You will see so many stories. You, I'm talking to you readers who have maybe not written a, read a book by a person of color or a crime writer of color. You will see so much in there that you recognize and that yes. seems familiar to you and that yeah. you go like, I got two poodles too. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. exactly. Who's they're going to solve this crime? <laughs> well, I have aunts like that. <laughs> I, have, like, I absolutely have aunts like that. <laughs> no, it's a it's a glorious time um, to celebrate, and I am so glad that we're we had this conversation celebrating Charlie. But I'm really excited about the book next year. Thank and you. Huge congratulations on that. It's, you, it Lee. sounds like it's going to be extraordinary. Thank you. Anna. Yeah. So, and thank you for everything you do with Sisters in Crime. Such a lot of work, I know, but you know, just well worth it for us. Yeah. No, it's a it's a wonderful organization and a wonderful community, and I'm incredibly blessed. Thank you, Cheryl. Thank you, Julie. Thank you for being with us today. Sisters in Crime is about community. We were founded to advocate for women crime writers, and we continue that mission by fighting for equity in the crime writing community. Sisters in Crime is an international, inclusive organization for all who write and love crime fiction, mystery, thrillers, and suspense. Join us at sistersincrime.org and make sure you subscribe to this podcast.